it was the start of a chain of events that led ultimately to Johnson & Johnson pulling that talcum baby powder off of the shelves in America and Canada and saying they will not sell it anymore. When it comes to the practice of law, Mark Lanier needs no introduction. On the punitive damages, I said, you've got a chance to make a statement here. And this is like a volume control on a stereo. The higher you dial it, the louder it will be. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Mark to hear how it felt the day he got a $4.69 billion verdict, what it really means to know thyself inside and outside of the courtroom, and what happened when his masterful storytelling and winning reputation earned him a role in a feature film with Chris Evans. My secretary comes in and she says, uh, hey, I got this guy on the phone who wants to know if you'll play yourself in the movie. And I said, what movie? That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. With over $20 billion in verdicts over the course of his illustrious career, it would seem that Mark Lanier was always destined to be a trial attorney. But as it turns out, Mark has had a few callings in life that had little to do with the practice of law. I did not grow up with a desire to be a lawyer. When I was in about eighth grade, our school gave us um, a test to determine what careers you might find most suitable for your talents. And the results of that test came in, and I had tested high in the ideas of being a trial lawyer or being a preacher or being a politician. Well, as I grew up, my faith was very important to me. So I thought the natural thing to do would be to be a preacher. Uh, I went to undergraduate school and it was a school that combined the seminary with the undergraduate school. So I graduated and among my degrees was a, a, a bachelor's in biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek. And I had that combined with a ministerial degree. I was able to take that and go to law school with it with the whole goal being of becoming a lawyer so that I could pay the bills and still be a preacher, but I wouldn't have to charge for preaching. I could do it because I wanted to and not because I had to, if that makes sense. And so I really just became a lawyer to pay the bills. I never dreamed that that it turned out to be a, a niche or a calling or, or, or an area that, that I would thrive in. I just thought, hey, I enjoy talking and thinking and processing and I, it might be a nice way to pay the bills. So if we fast forward to today, one could one could say with, with, I guess, a great degree of certainty that your results have been atypical. So for people to say that they have over $20 billion worth of verdicts in their career would be absolutely phenomenal. And it's, it's probably largely an anomaly. What do you think has largely contributed to that? You know, I, I think there's, it depends on which way you look at it. You know, if I'm looking at it through the the voice of my faith, it's been 
God putting me in the right place at the right time and, and helping me do a good job at what I'm doing. If I look at it through the voice of my practice, it's having a lot of mentors and a lot of opportunities and and a lot of good cases that came around in the right time and the right place where things fit together well. And I can look at it through both of those glasses and, and find reason to substantiate those viewpoints. Uh, ultimately, I think what I teach other people, at least, is, is to try to combine talent with hard work, with a diligent desire for truth and justice. And those are three aces that'll be hard to beat. If you look back, do you believe that there are some key decisions or pivotal moments that you believe kind of led you down this trajectory in, in, in terms of succeeding in, as a trial or the way you have? Oh, there's no question. So when I started out, I was originally as a uh, started as a defense lawyer. I was at this massive firm. At the time, it was called Fulbright and Jaworski. Now it's Norton Rose Fulbright. But I think I was like lawyer number 858. And I defended a lot of cases for a lot of businesses. And I tried a case one time where I was defending the railroad. And looking back at it, it was apparent to me that we, we were at fault and we owed this money. But I thought that through my legal skills, I was going to be able to win anyway. I hadn't really lost any cases at that point in time. I'd tried uh, uh, dozens of cases and dozens and dozens. And, and I thought, you know, I'm going to win this. I'm going to win the unwinnable case and blah, blah, blah. Well, uh, I lost. The jury returned a verdict for 550000 It's a case I could have settled for 500000 I did not settle it. I lost. The jury returned more money than I could have gotten out of ahead of time. And I realized as I was driving myself home that if I had won, it would have ruined the lives of a very good family. It would have been an injustice. And I would have used my skill to bring about something that that really is not a good achievement. It's not, I mean, who wants to say, yeah, I spent my life creating injustice and, and I didn't want to do that. And that's when I made a, a critical decision that I wanted to go on my own. I wanted to pick the cases I wanted to pick and I wanted to represent people that had been wronged. And that was one of those corners, one of those pivotal moments where you, you turn and it's a, in, in faith language, a, a Damascus Road experience where the scales of your eyes, you know, kind of fall off and you, you realize, okay, I've got a potent weapon here in my life and I need to use it for good. Mark has gotten to a point in his career where he can carefully pick and choose the cases he takes on. But for many attorneys, this seems to be more luxury than reality. I asked Mark what he would say to attorneys in that position. Well, there's no question that, that I've reached a point where I've got that luxury of, of being more careful about what I take. But all of us have a responsibility to do right by our talent and to do right by our system. Now, having said that, I'm not saying that there aren't just opportunities to defend cases as well, even if there is liability. If there's liability in a case and the plaintiff is seeking some amount that's an absurd or seemingly greedy amount, then there's certainly room to say time out. 
that's not a just demand. I can't settle this case justly. And so I need to defend this case and, and try to to find a better result. So I, I'm not slamming in some Pollyanna manner what anyone might do. Rather, I'm saying that we need to be thoughtful and deliberative by the same token. We've taken on some cases where, frankly, I don't think we necessarily were going to have justice on our side if we win, but I didn't expect those cases to be won. I'm specifically thinking about cases where some of my younger lawyers simply need trial experience. And so we'll take cases where we had one where a prisoner was suing the Texas state prison because he viewed having to eat meals in the same room with people who were of a different color skin uh, violated his religious rights of exclusivity to his skin color. Now, nobody's going to win that case and shouldn't win that case. But to give a lawyer a chance to go down and at least argue the summary judgment motion and lose it was the way that lawyer got some courtroom experience. And so when she came to me and said, I'd like to do this, I said, well, I can't let you stand up in court and, and actually defend racism. But what I can allow you to do is at least work through this, through the summary judgment process. And uh, then we'll see what happens from there. And so she took it down. She lost, but she got some valuable experience. There, there, there are other cases we've taken where, yeah, we're probably you know, not necessarily this isn't the one that's going to sing and produce the world, but it's important for people to develop their skill sets on those cases. And so cases can be an educational tool as well. So th th there's a large uh, scope, a big buffet, if you will, of cases out there. And sometimes you can take those cases for different reasons. But behind all of it, We've got to remember that we carry an awesome arsenal of opportunity, and that awesome arsenal of opportunity needs to be used for good, holy, right, just purposes. Mark's made his career on huge landmark cases. While many attorneys would land a seven or eight figure verdict and consider it a career case, Mark has numerous eight, nine, and even 10 figure verdicts under his belt. So what does Mark do that's different? How exactly is he getting so many huge verdicts time and time again? How we conduct pretrial discovery with an idea that we're going to try the case is very different than the way I think most people are doing it. How we take depositions is very different than the way most people are doing it. How we take an expert's deposition, an opposing expert, very simple. I've got a process for doing that that will allow me to send a novice lawyer out for the most important critical expert in the trial. And if that novice will follow my five-step rule for that deposition, it will be everything I need for trying the case. Uh, so if the preparation is different for us, I've got very cert stringent, certain rules for how to put on witnesses, for what order to put on witnesses. There are four critical moments in every trial and how you identify those moments and how you handle those moments are absolutely key. There's a whole area of litigation science that's involved not just in jury selection, but it's involved in communication theory and how you present things, how you persuade, uh, how you get people's minds around damages and, and thoughts like that, uh, how you move people from knowledge to motivation. Those are two different things. And, and some of this is 
information, but some of it's also wisdom. And, and I, I think you probably know the difference between the two, but if you don't, here's an example. Information is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in your fruit salad. Uh, uh, you cross that line somewhere. And so I try really hard to teach people not just to know what to do, but to be wise in how they do it. It seems that you have a level of innate curiosity. I guess I'm, I'm curious, how have you honed your skills? Well, I, I try to hone my skills in a variety of contexts. Number one, I watch other people and I learn by watching. I learn what to do and I learn what not to do. You can watch some people and you can immediately say, wow, how can I do that with my skill set? And you start thinking about it. But you can watch other people and you can say, man, I don't want to do that. Holy smoke, do they have any clue what they're doing here? And so you can learn by watching others. Now, that's true watching trial lawyers, but it's also true in almost any other form of communication. So I'll watch people on TV, and I'll try to figure out what makes for captivating TV and what doesn't. And I'll try to integrate that, not just into my trials, but into my depositions. Uh, I'll watch graphics on news channels and other places. And sometimes I'll have to hit the pause on the TV and I'll get my iPhone out and I'll take a snapshot of the graphic that's being used because I think I like this aspect of that graphic or this timeline. I'll video a timeline being shown on some educational show or something like that. And I'll try to emulate that in, in my practice and presentations with the jury. You can draw inspiration from all sorts of folks. And it doesn't have to just mean trial lawyers. So I think that's a source of, of work. I think another source of, of hard work is trying to figure out efficiency. You've got, as, as lawyers, we've got to remember the law is a jealous mistress if you're not careful. And she'll want all of your time. She'll want all of your energy. She'll want all of your attention. And yet, the best trial lawyers, I believe, are also well-rounded people. They're people who have a life outside the practice of law. They're people who know what's on TV that their jurors may be watching. They're people who can speak about love to a jury because they have that love in their family. They're people who can speak about the values of faith or the values of priorities because they have faith and priorities in their family. They're people who can, can exude a goodness, if you will, because they it's important to them to try to be good people. So this idea of how do we find balance in our life? How do we use our time? I've got rules for how I deal with emails. I've got rules for how I deal with phone calls that enable me to hopefully not only practice law, but I've got uh, three non-law books published. I've got chapters published in other books, and I've got five books on the, the drawing board or in the process of publication that have nothing to do with the practice of law. And it's to have time to do that while I also have, I think at this point, I've tried 13 cases that have gone into the third month or beyond tried them to a conclusion. And, and when you figure that's in itself 39 months in trial of every witness every day, that's a boatload of time. And so how do you manage time is a valuable tool for people to learn. It, it would mark with all the things that you're involved in. I imagine that much of this is always a function of priorities, but how do you define success? 
Oh, success for me, I define from my, my faith perspective. It, it is doing what I'm supposed to be doing before God, as I understand uh, God to be. And, and, and that means treating people with love and justice. It means walking humbly with God. It means uh, taking care of my family and nurturing that. It means being a good steward of the talents and gifts that I've got and making sure they're used for good purposes. I'm one of these uh, uh, maybe unusual people, but I truly believe there is a God. I truly believe he wants to be in a relationship with us so much so that, that he would would uh, uh, seek us out and ensure that we have that opportunity and that he's got plans for our lives. And so believing that and, and truly believing it, not just giving it lip service, means success for me is meeting that God and walking with that God and doing the things he set before me to do to, to his glory and not my own. And in that, I find great joy. I find great satisfaction. And that to me is success. In speaking with numerous successful leaders on this podcast, I found that they all have deep personal clarity about who they are and their purpose. Mark is also an advocate of knowing thyself. So how does he balance between being a chameleon in the courtroom while remaining authentic? I think the more we know and understand ourselves, the more honest we'll be with ourselves. And I think it translates in front of a jury because juries, especially the younger jurors, but all jurors seek authenticity. Uh, I mean, don't we all seek that? I can be on your podcast, Michael, and I can give fake answers and people could sniff that out. And once they do, they discount everything else that I say. Or I can try to be authentic to who I am, try to be genuine. And in the process, people may not agree with everything I say, but they'll at least respect the fact that I'm trying to give them what I believe to be the truth. And so one of the hardest parts for me as a trial lawyer is let, let me take a step back and, and give you some insight as to how this developed with me. When I was young, we moved around all the time. My dad worked for the railroad in the business end of the railroad, and he got transferred often. So I was born in Dallas. I'm Texas. I moved to Fort Worth. I moved to Shreveport, Louisiana, then to New Orleans, Louisiana, then to Abilene, Texas, Memphis, Tennessee, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Rochester, New York, Lubbock, Texas, all by middle school. And when you move around that much, you're constantly making new friends. You're learning new ways to talk. When I was in second grade in Memphis, Tennessee, I'd talk like a Memphis, Tennessee kid with a Southern accent and y'all and everything else. But then in the middle of that year to move to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I had a teacher who was incensed that I would use the word y'all and a teacher who didn't like me saying vegetable because it was vegetable. And I would get in trouble in class if I didn't say things the way she wanted them said. You learn to become almost chameleon-like in the way you deal with different cultures and different aspects of things. Now, that's been a big boon to me as a trial lawyer. I have no trouble going to New York and trying cases. I tried many cases in New Jersey, uh, California, uh, you know, coast to coast, north and south, Midwest, you name it. I'll go anywhere and, and I do fine fitting into that. But the, the, the negative to it is you have a tendency, or at least I have a tendency, to imitate the people around me. I have trouble talking to someone who speaks with a Hispanic accent without almost 
uh, subconsciously putting a Hispanic accent into my voice. And so I worked for one lawyer for a while who was really, really successful and really good. And I thought, man, this guy's amazing. But he was also inherently a rather brash, if not downright mean person. And so when he would interact with people in a courtroom, he did it in a brash, if not downright mean way. And so my work with him would give me a tendency to try to to imitate or emulate that same thing. And yet I, I'm not really a brash, downright mean person. I tend to be uh, uh, the opposite end of, of that pendulum swing, I hope and I believe. And, and so it came across inauthentic to my actual nature. And I had to realize, and, and I reached a point one day where a lawyer from Florida said to me, it was David Lipman, David said to me, Lanier, how many cases did you have to try before you realize you just need to be yourself? And I said, David, I can remember exactly when I turned that corner because there came a time where uh, it was no longer be the chameleon imitating those that, that are successful. It was rather learn their tools and what makes them successful, but integrate them into who you are as a person. Be authentic to who you are. And that authenticity will pass the smell test with your audience, be they jurors or be they a church congregation. People think Mark Lanier, they think this is a great storyteller, you know, without a doubt. And I mean that truly as as a compliment. Were you always a good storyteller or do you believe that that's something that developed over time? Well, I think to some degree, I came by that honestly. My mom was an amazing storyteller. When I was growing up as a kid, you'd always have your friends over. And I'd have friends over for a slumber party, you know, third grade, big thing to do. Well, my friends quickly learned mom could cook and mom could tell stories. So whenever they came over, I'd want to go out and play baseball or throw the football or play basketball. They were like, nah, let's just eat your mom's cookies and have her tell us stories. When I was a young man and we've got a a son followed by four daughters, our two oldest daughters uh, were close enough in age and their personalities were such that they would bicker and argue and fight like crazy. And it just really drove me to wits end because I was like, oh, mercy, I'm going to have them in the car every day. I would drive them to school. It would be 30 minutes of them fussing and fighting in the back seat while I'm driving them. And I thought, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to fix this? And the solution for me was to tell them a story. And every year I would tell them a story. And I say every year because it would take a year for me to finish. It would be 30 minutes. I would start the story as they got in the car. They would listen to it carefully. I would tell them the story. And then right as they're getting out of the car, I'd have it at a cliffhanger position. Dad, tell us what. Now you got to get out. I'll finish it tomorrow. So the next day they'd get in the car for me to drive them in the morning. Dad, remember, here's where we were in the store. Now tell us. And I'd resolve the cliffhanger, but I'd get continue on in the story to get to another cliffhanger right at the time we were pulling up to school. So I basically spent two or three years telling my kids a story every morning for 30 minutes, trying to keep the attention of a second and third grade daughter. And if you can tell stories every day 
for two years to keep the attention of an elementary school kid, then you'll learn and cultivate the ability to tell stories in no time. So let's shift gears you know, to the trials aspect. And with some of these, you know, the opposition you've been going up against, like a Johnson & Johnson, for example, do you get nervous you know, walking into a courtroom when, when you're facing, let's say, a Johnson & Johnson? No, I don't get nervous. I get excited. You know, it, it's really interesting. And this, this again, is, is part of how I try a case from out of my faith. You know, I'm in there because I think this is where God wants me to be. It's that clarity of purpose you were talking about before. I think this is what I'm supposed to do. I think I'm in here. You, you know, David wasn't nervous when he was picking up the stones and he was about to fight Goliath, even though Goliath was a giant that had frightened the rest of Israel. David's attitude was, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he's going to taunt the armies of God? This guy's a fool. He picks up the stones and the rest of its history. We use David and Goliath uh, uh, as a, an apt illustration in all aspects of culture today. So I, I kind of get excited. It's kind of like, I can't wait to do this. And, and it's really interesting because generally, I think a lot of the defense lawyers I've been against don't have that same level of excitement. I think they do tend to have nerves. And I can't tell you how many cases where I've gone up to them knowing we've got a packed courtroom knowing that opening statements are about to be given to not just a packed courtroom, but to a lot of media that are present, newspapers, uh, even TV cameras, etc. And I'll walk up to the other side before the jury comes in. And I'll stick my hand out there and shake my hands and say, guys, isn't it a great honor that we get to do this? Can you believe we've got this chance to do this today? I want to wish you guys the very best in this. And, uh, uh, you know, if we don't pause before these moments and recognize we're getting to do something few people get to do, and we, we, and we don't zealously relish this moment, then heaven help us. So, so enjoy it, guys. I'll see you at the other side. And they're like... Uh, 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 gee, uh, 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 yeah, I guess. And it's almost intimidating to some of them because they're so nervous about this. And I seem to just be, uh, I mean, I feel like I've got a day at the beach. This is just a cool chance to do something really fun. When you're on top, along with great success, often comes a giant target on your back. As the saying goes, everyone wants to take down the king. And many attorneys see winning in court against the great Mark Lanier as the ultimate achievement. But Mark isn't phased. In fact, he welcomes the challenge. I've been in cases before where people have said, you know, I, I'm going to be the one. I'm taking you out. And they seem to be trying it just for that. And I love those opportunities because that means that their focus is not where it should be. Their focus ought to be on the truth and getting to the truth in front of the jury. Instead, their focus is on taking me down. So I lost the case one time to this fellow. And there are a variety of reasons I lost the case. Um, and he actually posted on his website at a big international firm, I beat Mark Lanier. 
And I mean, these are people who have ju- uh, lawyers that clerked for the Supreme Court of the United States, and they put that on their page or have handled all of these things. And he's just got on there. I beat Mark Lanier one time 11 years ago. And I'm, I'm like, oh, gee, really? So he gets in to try another case against me, and he's hired by the company because he's, quote, the Mark Lanier killer. And um, uh, we go in and we try the case, and the jury returns a verdict of $4.69 billion. One of the reporters who wrote up the trial said to me afterwards, they said, uh, yeah, the defense lawyer was saying that that uh, he's beaten you before, and so now y'all are one in one. And I, I kind of laughed and I said, yeah, I guess that's one way to see it. I just see it differently. And she said, how do you see it? I said, I see it every time I try a case against him. I win on average $2.3 billion and, uh, uh, and, and laughed about it. But, you know, anybody who's going to hold themselves out as I'm the Mark Lanier killer, that's not the focus. That's not what it should be. And, and so I count that as a good thing for me. That helps me. So in, in with that verdict that you mentioned, so I think it was in, in July of 2018, that was the $4.69 billion verdict. I think it was the largest verdict in the country that year. I mean, I have to ask, what, what was that day like? Uh, that was a good day. Uh, that was a real good day. It's on appeal, obviously. And uh, uh, we'll see what happens on appeal. But the thing about that case was it was a monumental issue that had not been tried before. And we believe that Johnson & Johnson baby powder had asbestos in it and that that asbestos had caused the ovarian cancer in our 22 plaintiffs. I still believe that today. And it was the start of a chain of events that led ultimately to Johnson & Johnson several months ago or six weeks ago pulling that talcum baby powder off of the shelves in America and Canada and saying they will not sell it anymore. I think that saves countless lives uh, into the future. And it's a huge thing. And when I talked to the jury, one of the things that I talked to the jury about, their actual damages in that case wound up being actual damages of, oh, right at, uh, I don't know, it was 500 million or 600, 700 million for actual damages. But on the punitive damages, I said, you got a chance to make a statement here. And this is like a volume control on a stereo. The higher you dial it, the louder it will be. And you can make a statement that will resonate throughout this courtroom, or you can make a statement that will be heard throughout this courthouse. You can make a statement that all of St. Louis will hear. You can make a statement that all of Missouri can hear. Or you can choose right now, at this moment, you have the power to make a statement that will be heard throughout the United States of America and around the world. I said, Johnson & Johnson doesn't have their stroke in here. They don't have their president in here. They don't have the chairman of the board in here. But I promise you, those people are in a boardroom in New Jersey, and they will have their cell phones on, and they are going to want to hear what you have to tell them. And that phone call will come in. And if you write this small, there will be champagne corks popping in the boardroom at J&J. But if you write this correctly, they're going to set down their phones and say, oh, my goodness, 
we cannot continue to do business this way. How do we change what we're about and become good corporate citizens? That's the power you've got. And so when the jury came back, I was overjoyed and thrilled, first and foremost, because I had 22 women, uh, five or six of whom had already died. Since that point in time, three more have died from their cancer. I had these women who had, had invested their heart and their soul and their life in trying to get justice on this. And it was a thrilling moment for them. I had a team who had worked so hard in this case. It was a thrilling moment for them. And then the jury had become so invested in it. It was a thrilling moment for them and a chance to finally, after months, get to talk to the jury where they could talk back and not just sit on the other side of the bar. So that was a, that was a Kodak moment, if you will. That was, that was a really special time for me. And Mark, as you look back across your career, I mean, do, do you have any regrets? Oh, heavens, of course I have regrets. Uh, 1993, I had a helicopter case I was trying. Helicopter crashed, and it left a woman, a widow, with nine children under the age of 18. And the defense attorney had offered me $2 million for that case. And I thought it, my bottom line was $2.5 million. And I told him, I said, uh, nope. Two and a half million, or we'll try it. And they said, well, all we're going to offer is two. And I said, then we'll try it. And we tried it. And the jury came back with zero. And my widow looked at me and said, can we go ahead and take the two million now? And I had to explain to her that I had said before, that's not how it works. Thankfully, by the grace of God, we had a judge who really was compassionate about justice and thought that perhaps this had been a racially motivated jury. I had an African-American plaintiff and we had an all-white jury and it was in a bit of a racist venue. And he thought that that might have been involved in the verdict. And so he pulled us back into chambers and he said to the defense lawyer, under Texas law, I have the ability to grant a new trial, giving no reason at all, just on my own. And he said, I'm going to grant that unless you offer Mr. Lanier a million dollars. And then he looked at me and he said, Mr. Lanier, you're going to take that million dollars and give all of it to the plaintiff. You're eating your expenses. You're eating your time. You're eating everything. All money goes to the plaintiff, which if I'd taken the $2 million offer after you take out fees and expenses is roughly what she'd have gotten anyway. And the defense lawyer went out, made a phone call, came back and said, okay, we'll pay the million. I said, of course, judge, I'll waive it. But, uh, you know, that's that's one regret. I've got a host of regrets. Well, so I was, I was thinking you might mention the uh, that 2011 movie uh, that, that you started in Puncture. So, and, and I have to ask, the movie, I think with Chris Evans, uh, what do you enjoy doing more? Being a lawyer in real life or, or playing one of the movies? You know, the, the movie was pretty fun. So the way that came about is I got a phone call from somebody one day who said, we want to do a movie on one of your cases, this uh, antitrust case you had. And I said, oh, yeah, everybody wants to do a movie. Have a good time. And they said, well, would you meet with our script writer? And I said, sure, why not? So I met with this nice gal and she interviewed me for a couple of hours and I figure nothing ever comes of it. Everybody wants to make a movie. About a year later, I get another phone call. It says, hey, Lanier, would you be willing to let us use your name in the movie? And I said, well, you need to send me the, the, the pages that have my name. I want to make sure that it doesn't have me saying, using vocabulary I don't use or, or an attitude I wouldn't have or, you know, 
chasing women or getting drunk or anything like that. Uh, so send me the pages. Let me look at them. Well, they sent the pages. Looked like a good reflection of me and what I do in life and, and my character and the way I talk. So I said, sure, you can use my name. Of course, not looking at the rest of the script. Big mistake, by the way. And then uh, I figure it never gets made anyway. About six months later, seven months later, I get a my secretary comes in. And she says, uh, hey, I got this guy on the phone who wants to know if you'll play yourself in the movie. And I said, what movie? I don't know. I said, well, patch him through. And I'd totally forgotten about it. The guy says, look, uh, we've been we've had two casting calls. We're not happy with anybody who's read for your part. We've watched you on YouTube. Would you be willing to play yourself in the movie? And I said, well, I mean, if there's time, uh, the time works, I'd, I'd be glad to try. I said, but if I'm terrible, you have to cut me and leave me on the cutting room floor because I don't want everybody looking at it thinking I'm a fool. And uh, he said, okay, deal. So it, the time worked out. I get to film these things. Well, the first scene that they've got me filming is I'm holding a press conference on the courthouse steps and Chris Evans walks out. And, and when they're putting the movie together, the first thing they do is they block the scene. So they put a piece of tape on the ground and say, okay, Mark, you walk to this piece of tape. And from here, you look over in this direction and blah, blah, blah. They set the lights, they set the cameras. And then they're off dealing with Chris Evans because he's got to be behind me in the scene walking out and they're doing his blocking. Well, while they do that, there's a set of extras in the, the, the movie. And the extras are people who are going to be in the film crew. One of them's got a camera or two of them got a camera. Some of them have microphones. Some of them look like reporters with pads. And one of the reporters comes up to me. He says, with a, a Hispanic accent, he says, hey, you're Mark Lanier, aren't you? And I said, uh, I am. Good to meet you. Who are you? He says, no, no, no. I don't mean in the, the movie. I mean, in real life, you're Mark Lanier, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I, I am. It's, it's good to meet you. Tell me about you. And he says, my name is Javier Rodriguez or something. He's, he said, uh, and he was a real short little Hispanic fella. He says, my name is Javier Rodriguez. I read for your part. And so did my friend over there on the camera. And he turned around and pointed at his friend and yelled at his friend, hey, it really is Mark Lanier. Then he turns back to me and he says, I said to my friend just now, no wonder we didn't get the part. They found somebody who looks just like Mark Lanier. And uh, so, I mean, I was just a few inches away from being a short fellow with a Hispanic accent in that movie. But instead, uh, uh, I played myself. He probably could have played me better than I did, but uh, uh, he was a good guy. But um, uh, I played myself. It was a lot of fun. The movie itself was bizarre going to the premiere and the red carpet and all of that mess. Uh, but it was fun. So, so today, Mark, with all the litigations you're involved with, uh, with everything you do, even with Sunday school, with your family, what are the, you know, the, the daily habits that you, you may have that set you up for success and that allow you to be so consistent? So Denzel Washington gives a great commencement speech. People ought to watch it on YouTube. And in that commencement speech, he tells everybody, I hope you put your slippers so far under your bed at night when you go to sleep that in the morning you have to get on your knees to pull them out. And while you're on your knees, thank the Lord for your day and pray for his wisdom to get through it. I thought, man, Denzel Washington bringing it home. And uh, uh, I do try each morning to, to have my quiet time with God. I think it sets my compass for the day. It, it orients me. It, it keeps me, I hope, true and grounded. I try to read and write a little bit each day. 
right now during all this COVID stuff, I record a video thought for the day that's four to five minutes long. And and a lot of people are subscribed to that uh, on YouTube. Uh, they, they get posted and a lot of people just email me and, and get on the subscription list that way. Uh, so I record one of those each morning. Uh, I try to to get through the day in a way that I, when I'm done, I'm able to be with my family and truly connect with each one of them in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And then uh, during the week, I try to get ready for my class that I teach each Sunday. It's uh, it's live streamed on the internet, and uh, we get uh, viewers from all over the world and and email traffic from all over the world that I'm able to make connections with. And, and so uh, I'm just trying to do the best I can each day and get it all done. Well, I, I will say you're an inspiration for many, and, and this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, and you clearly being a game changer, but what does being a game changer mean to you? Being a game changer to me means trying to not just do what everyone else has done, but trying to go out there and blaze a new trail. You know, one of the things that I've really tried hard to do as a lawyer is uh, I made a decision before every case I tried, I wanted to kick my game up another notch. I wanted to learn a new skill set. I wanted to learn a new concept. I wanted to learn and develop something new so that I don't look back at the end of my legal career and say, I peaked, you know, seven years ago, or I peaked at this trial or that trial. I want to be able to look back and say, I got better each time. And if you have that attitude, you got no choice but to be a game changer because you're going to find all of these new things and new ways you can do things that change your own game. And if you're changing your own game, you're changing the game for others because people will watch and people will learn. I want to give a huge thank you to the one and only Mark Lanier for taking the time to speak with me today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was Mark's tremendous passion, energy, and drive for justice. Not only does that make for a dangerous adversary in the courtroom, but also a powerful advocate within the legal community. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. Join us next time when I'll be joined by the world's foremost expert on innovation, disruption, and hypergrowth leadership, Josh Linkner. We'll be discussing actionable ways to cultivate a mindset of everyday innovation that can accelerate your firm's growth in unbelievable new ways. I think it's our responsibility as leaders, whether it's leaders in our businesses or our law firms or even in our communities, to systematically put ourselves out of business. For more details from our interview with Mark Lanier, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. Oh, 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 oh,